0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called, When Daughters Go in Peace. It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 1st, 2018. There aren't many Bible verses that bring tears to my eyes as quickly as the one that lies at the heart of this week's Gospel reading. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. According to St. Mark, the woman had been bleeding for 12 years. Her hemorrhaging rendered her ritually unclean, not just for a day or a week or a month, but indefinitely. She could not enter the temple, the heart and soul of her religious community. She could not touch or be touched by anyone without rendering them unclean, too. By the time she approached Jesus, she had spent every penny she owned and endured much under many physicians to find relief, but her bleeding had only worsened. The woman's very body... Its femaleness, its porousness, had become a source of isolation and disgrace. She was an outcast, an embarrassment, a pariah, lonely beyond description. And so it might have remained if the woman hadn't, in a desperate and stunning act of civil disobedience, defied the religious rules of her day to pursue an encounter with Jesus. She knew she had no business polluting the crowds with her presence. She knew she was forbidden to touch any man, least of all Jesus, She knew that even her fingertips on his cloak would defile him. She decided to touch him anyway. If the story ended there, with a stolen touch, an unremarked healing, an invisible but still potent transformation of the woman's life, I would consider it miracle enough. But no, Jesus invited more. He insisted on more. He insisted that the woman, terrified though she was, come forward and tell her story, her whole truth. He knew that she had spent 12 long years having other people impose their narratives on her, their interpretations, their assumptions, their prejudices. She had been reduced to caricature, shamed into silence by bad religion. Even if she trembled and stammered and took all day to tell her story, Jesus knew how desperately she needed someone to listen, to understand, and to bless her whole truth in the presence of a larger community. This was what Jesus did. He restored her to fellowship, to dignity, to humanity— Daughter, he said, when she fell silent at last. Daughter, go in peace. Part of the reason I find the story so compelling is because I can relate to aspects of it. When I was 19 years old, I tried to tell my family a whole truth about my childhood, a dark, secret truth I'd carried alone for 10 years. I still remember vividly how hard my hands shook and my heart pounded as I sat my family down around our kitchen table and whispered the ominous words no one likes to hear. We need to talk. I had been sexually molested by two men in our church community from the time I was nine years old until I turned 14. During the years the abuse was happening, I had no language for it, no narrative I could fit the violations into. All I understood was that something huge and wrong was happening, something I must have caused and therefore deserved. Because the perpetrators were not strangers, I didn't think of their actions as criminal. I took every shred of blame for the abuse into my own bones. By the time the abuse ended, I believed that my body was irrevocably polluted, ugly, promiscuous, and dishonorable. My attempt to tell my family the truth came after my first year away at college, a year during which I finally faced the trauma of the molestation and began the process of healing. I practiced telling for weeks, mouthing the awful words into the bathroom mirror, or writing them down to get the sentences just right. And then, one weekend while I was home, I sat my family down, took many deep breaths, and asked them to listen they couldn't. My whole truth was too large, too scandalous, and too taboo to fit into any narrative they could comfortably accept. As South Asians living in America, they lived by a strict code of honor and shame. Some things were sayable, and some were not, especially for girls and young women. Our community could tolerate small doses of truth when it came to bad things, but whole truths, especially whole truths involving sex, gender, abuse, and the female body were too dangerous to name. Whole truths like mine belonged in the darkness, and I was told to keep them there. I was lucky, though, in that I eventually found people who could bear my story. Not bear it as in tolerate it, but bear it as in help me shoulder its horror and bring it into the light. Over many months and years, these good people walked alongside me, carrying my whole truth with grace and compassion. With each shaky retelling, the story lost more of its sting. In the patient, tender company of loving listeners, I healed. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. Something beautiful happens when we give each other permission to tell the truth. Something dies when that essential permission is stripped away. For me, the experience of having my loved ones turn away from my story was a trauma nearly as damaging as the abuse itself. It unhoused and unhinged me. But the experience of having people listen with compassion and wholeheartedness, that experience saved my life. I hope it's lost on none of us that our lectionary this week features one, a desperate father pleading for the life of his dying little girl, and two, an outcast woman telling her shameless truth to the only man in the crowd who will listen. In Jairus' story, Jesus demands that we not pronounce death where he sees life. In the bleeding woman's story, he demands that legalism give way to compassion every single time. In each story, Jesus restores a lost child of God to community and intimacy. In each story, Jesus takes hold of what is impure, the menstruating woman, the dead body, in order to practice mercy. In each story, a previously hopeless daughter goes in peace, because Jesus finds value where no one else will. Are we listening? Could there be a more fitting lection for our time and place? As I write these words, I'm haunted by the hundreds of immigrant families at the U.S. border who are in anguish because their whole truths remain unpalatable to many Americans. These asylum seekers have searing stories of violence, pain, and terror to share. But those stories are falling on deaf ears because they don't fit into our culture's mainstream racist narratives about illegals, aliens, and criminals. Immigrant children are living in cages. Nursing babies are being ripped out of their mother's arms. Empathy, mercy, and human decency have been replaced by zero tolerance. Where God sees life, hungry, hopeful, needy, broken, sacred, inviolable life, those in political power are pronouncing death. In response to these and other horrors, Michael Curry, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, reminds us that if it doesn't look like love, if it doesn't look like Jesus of Nazareth, it cannot be claimed to be Christian. If it doesn't look like love, it isn't Christian. Period. What looks like love? What looks like Jesus of Nazareth? The one whose heart melts at the cry of a desperate father. The one who visits the six six child's house and takes her hand in his. The one who risks defilement to touch the bloody and the broken. The one who insists on the whole truth, however falteringly told. The one who listens without flinching. The one who brings life to dead places. The one who insists on hope. The one who turns mourning into dancing. The one who renames the outcast daughter and bids her go in peace. For books this week, Dan reviews The Futilitarians by Anne Giselson. After she fled her hometown of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, when her father died of cancer, and then her identical twin sisters both committed suicide 18 months apart, Anne Gisleson wondered, how do we keep moving forward? How do you negotiate grief and disaster? Her new husband had his own traumas, Brad's previous partner had died the year before at the age of 33 from a brain tumor, leaving him alone to raise a three-year-old son. For Giselson, you keep moving forward by doing it together. She gathered some friends in post-Katrina New Orleans, for whom flux was the norm, who were all in some way in the glum roles of middle-aged discontent, that age bracket with its throbbing ambivalence and urgent doubt. They were an eclectic bunch, an artist, a plumber, a carpenter, a professor, a painter, etc., and so at the Hot Walk Buffet in a suburban strip mall they started the Existential Crisis Reading Group. The ECRG met on the last Thursday of every month, fueled by food and drink, but especially by food for the soul and the spirit. Their first readings were from Epicurus and Ecclesiastes. There was a piece by Arthur Kessler, The Contrasted Life on the Tragic and the Trivial Plains, an offerings from Tolstoy and John Cheever. One week was devoted to poetry. My favorite month was April, when in the deeply Catholic city they reenacted the Via Dolorosa, except they called it the stations of the crisis. Yes, she admits, their enterprise sounds pretentious, perhaps goofy, and in one aside she joked that they were, quote, sounding French. At the end of the year, the futilitarians, as they call themselves, decided to keep on keeping on. Whether you warm up to any given monthly reading or not, the ECRG embodies an important message for us all, that of seeking comfort in community. The novelist Dave Eggers touts this as a shattering and very important book, one of the best of the year. For Movies This Week, Dan reviews Black Panther. First there was Superman in 1938, then came Captain America in 1941. Fast forward to today and we have Black Panther, which is the wildly anticipated 18th superhero movie by Marvel Studios. There are three trend lines that are noteworthy about this film. First, it has generated all sorts of box office buzz with over $1 in sales, and for good reasons. Second, if you enjoy the superhero genre, critics are unanimous that it's simply a fantastic movie. In the make-believe African country of Wakanda, there's a new king called T'Challa. Among his other regal responsibilities, he must protect his country's unique natural resource called vibranium. It's more than just a medal. The king has his main man, Okoye, a romantic interest in Nakia, and his nemesis, Killmonger, who is a would-be usurper to the throne. Rotten Tomatoes has given Black Panther a 97% approval rating. Third, and most interesting, is all the critical discussion about the movie as a uniquely and distinctly black film. The black director, Ryan Coogler, made his debut with the murder documentary Fruitvale Station, and then the sports drama Creed. There have been black superheroes before, observes Anthony Lane, but none have been given dominion over a blockbuster. Nor has a genre until now allowed black identity to be the ground baths of a single tale. This feels like a heavy burden to bear for a superhero movie, but if it has us talking about such an important issue for American culture, that is surely a very good thing. Finally, for poetry this week, Home by Warsan Shire. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbor's running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one leaves home unless home chases you, fire under feet, hot blood in your belly, It's not something you ever thought of doing until the blade burnt threats into your neck. And even then you carried the anthem under your breath, only tearing up your passport in an airport toilet, sobbing as each mouthful of paper made it clear that you wouldn't be going back. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains, beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck Feeling on newspaper unless the miles traveled means something more than journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten, pitied. No one chooses refugee camps or strip searches where your body is left aching or prison because prison is safer than a city of fire and one prison guard in the night is better than a truckload of men who look like your father. No one could take it. No one could stomach it. No one's skin would be tough enough. The go-home blacks, refugees, dirty immigrants, asylum seekers sucking our country dry, niggers with their hands out. They smell strange, savage, messed up their country, and now they want to mess ours up. How do the words, dirty looks, roll off your backs? Maybe because a blow is softer than a limb torn off? Or the words are more tender than 14 men between your legs? Or the insults are easier to swallow than rubble, than bone, than your child body in pieces? I want to go home. But home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun, and no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home told you to quicken your legs, leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the ocean, drown, save, be hunger, beg, forget pride. Your survival is more important. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 1st, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.